Welcome to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. My name is Fregel Byrne. Every week I speak to leading sustainability thinkers and practitioners, scientists, economists, NGOs, business leaders and investors. We discuss the sustainability imperative, the key challenges, the latest thinking, and what's working in sustainability, resilience and regeneration. If you would like a transcript of this episode, or indeed any earlier episode, please email me at fergal at the sustainabilityagenda.com. I'm very pleased to welcome Toby Webb back to the Sustainability Agenda. Toby is the founder of Innovation Forum, a UK-based purpose-driven company that works in the areas of food, agriculture, land use, plastics, apparel and textiles, and Scope 3 GHG emissions. Innovation Forum brings together business executives with civil society groups, governments, academics and other experts to find solutions to difficult supply chain challenges. Thank you very much for joining me today once again on the Sustainability Agenda podcast. Pleasure, Fergal. Always great to speak with you. So um, we we it's 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 some time now since we last spoke, and um, you've been working away. And uh, I'm particularly interested in uh, a recent research project um, that you you've done, uh, which is very detailed and very interesting. And hopefully, we can cover some of the key key lessons there uh, about you know uh, supply chains and uh, smallholder farmers. Um, but maybe just before we we, we go there, uh, can you introduce yourself and a little bit about Innovation Forum, the work you do. Sure, happy to. Thanks, Fergal. Um, yeah, so um, Innovation Forum is um, a grandly titled small company. Uh, we call ourselves a platform for change. And what that means really is, is that we exist to try and pull together companies, NGOs, policymakers, academics, experts, and others to solve complex problems in business supply chains around sustainability. And we do that through the medium of very interactive discussion-based conferences, through workshops, webinars, seminars, podcasts, um, and, uh, and action research. And action research tends to be uh, work that we do really talking to people on the ground in supply chains or going there ourselves and trying to work out what the solutions are that business can collaborate on so they can tackle sustainability challenges. One of the biggest ones being smallholder farming in various commodities around the world and how uh, these companies can learn from each other in helping make farming more resilient. Agriculture and land use forests is a big part of what we do. Another part is around plastics and uh, convening companies on the plastics pollution problem and the solutions. Uh, But we also work in textiles and apparel where we run a leading global forum every year and have an ongoing research project uh, on that. So there are various things that we do. And the latest thing is working on what we call scope three climate emissions, uh, scope three climate change um, projects, where we are helping companies again convene uh, around how they tackle the the, the challenge of scope three carbon emissions, um, more in the supply chain than on in, than with consumer use, because we think there's that's a slightly it's a slightly easier path to go down, although both of them are very difficult. 
Yes, I was going to say that's uh, if your plate wasn't already full. Um, adding that, uh, and 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 particularly the uh, so many companies don't have the skills and expertise yet in in these areas and uh, a vital role you're playing there. Now we're in the midst of a, the COVID crisis, well at various stages in Europe, and indeed all the interlocking environmental crises that have been building over some time that you've seen. What what in particular is on your mind? Is there something that's keeping you awake? Are there there, there are, uh, few crucial issues that that you're thinking about well i mean in the very short term the impact of the pandemic has a sort of hidden a huge swath of victims uh, and that can be you know those left on on furlough or unemployed in in countries like the uk with you know mental health issues or financial economic issues or all of the above um but in our in our case where we feel we can make a difference is again this focus on smallholder agriculture and farming because there's there's a whole change in society that's happened in various countries where brands and, and and others were sourcing from, whereby lots of farmers have gone back to villages. It's unclear whether they'll go back to cities or whether they'll go abroad again. There are remittances challenges. You know, lots of countries were functioning using remittances from overseas. Lots of those workers have had to go home. What will happen to them now? You know, what happens to community life in those villages? Domestic violence, alcohol abuse, all sorts of problems, uh, as if the poor, poorer nations of the world didn't have enough to contend with. Um, the, the, the hidden victims of COVID are, are not always those who who, who are suffering uh, with the illness itself. It's the knock-on effect economically is is equally challenging. So that's a big area of concern. I'm not saying that we we're, we're helping solve that. We're doing our best to highlight the issues and help companies think through what they can do about it in their sourcing decisions. But that's terribly difficult. Um, so that's a very short-term issue, which we hope. You know, we'll 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 improve as as vaccinations get out there in the world. Although, as you and I both know, Fergal, there's a very long way to go on that in in Africa and, and Southeast Asia. Um, and then, of course, you know, the, the the big existential threat, as we all know, is climate change. Um, and uh, you know, we're looking forward to COP26 and the opportunity of the British government has of showing leadership there. Um, uh, we hope sincerely um, that that will lead to to something to boost the the Paris Agreement. Um, so that's both micro and macro challenges, I suppose, at either end of the spectrum. And in the middle there, there's all the all the issues that are ongoing, you know, deforestation, um, poverty, human rights issues, uh, and so on, which companies are increasingly large companies and their suppliers are, are trying to tackle. Yes, indeed. At the same time, we are seeing uh, tremendous momentum on a number of fronts. And- corporate um, government multilateral uh dealing with global warming and and you know uh, other environmental issues you've been in this field for some time what inspires you the most at the moment and and are there do you think that there that, that we are at a, a point of transition well i hope so um you know there, there's a lot of money around whether that's investor money or corporate cash or build back better money funds from the European Union, you know, debt is cheap. And it looks like the sort of stock market um, company earnings side of things is going to go pretty well for the next year or two. Now, we may have a big economic bump in 18 months, two years, who knows. Um, But everything's sort of gone out the window uh, with COVID in terms of economic predictions. So um, what inspires me at the moment is there's this incredible interest in tackling the complexity of problems which was not there before. And if there's any kind of silver lining out of the last 18 months, it's that realisation of the vulnerability of supply chains, that consumers are becoming more conscious, uh, and the numbers there indicate that. So the signs 
uh, of a desire for change have enormously improved. And that is a great thing. The question is, how do we capitalize on that and keep it going um, when we have a kind of economic bill to pay in a few years' time, uh, when perhaps the economic situation might worsen uh, as, as the sort of COVID um, situation perhaps we hope comes to a more of a close, uh, but then the bills have to be paid. So um, the question is, how do we use that momentum now? And that's what gets me out of bed every morning is saying, right, how do we use the opportunity we have to try and get organisations to try and deliver sustainable change that could ride out any future uh, challenges? Yes. Now, that would be very interesting. Uh, before talking here, going into, well, some details, so it's, a, it's, a, it's a big, uh, uh, complex uh, piece of research and we'll hit some of the highlights on it. Before, before going into that, maybe just a few words on the, the food industry generally and its move towards sustainability. Um, uh, another big question, but, um, you know, what, what, what would you say is driving players? Uh, clearly, there, there are different kind of ways of classifying the, the, the players in the industry. There are, you know, there are the big brands, uh, consumer facing, there are other uh, commodity companies that private and very big um, then there's the uh, smallholder supply chains which you're talking about which feed into uh, you know the, the food industry at various different levels um, presumably to some extent it's 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 a mix of factors of, uh, in terms of uh, consumer awareness in terms also of, of activists and you know people like Greenpeace and so forth and also changing economics and I, I guess uh, corporate leadership as well companies see this as important and uh, there's some uh, quite uh, impressive innovation and commitment going on. I, I listened to one of your webinars and I was very impressed with the, the, the way in which uh, some of the, the companies were talking and framing these issues and talking about, you know, uh, economic justice and, and poverty and, and alleviation and questions like that. Uh, too much to try and cover, I guess, but just a, a couple of uh, points maybe on that. Yeah, so I see three three key drivers at the moment. Uh, the first is resilience. Uh, so the food system now, the food industry now realizes just how vulnerable it is. And in fact, the food companies kind of always knew this. You know, what is it they say? We're a few meals away from, from the end of civilization in terms of if, you know, if they're lacking, society falls apart rather quickly. So the resilience angle has been brought to the light uh, by covid and it's something the agriculture industry or food industry has understood for a long time. So there's great impetus there on securing resilience, which means in many cases helping poor farmers. Um, the second driver, I think, is around disclosure, things like the TCFD, Task Force on, on Financial on, on Climate Disclosure. Um, that and the regulatory pressures and campaigning pressures uh, on companies mean they can't escape uh, the carbon spotlight, which is linked. And then the third thing, as you mentioned, Fergal, is that kind of consumer awareness. You know, sales of organic wine have gone through the roof uh, during lockdown. People are becoming more conscious, um, more thoughtful about their purchases. So that consumer desire um, combined with um, the increasing number of lower impact options, you know, uh, meat-free meat, uh, dairy alternatives and so on, that's driving a huge amount of interest and change. If you look at the the financial flows, you know, if you set up an alternative milk company, um, you can definitely find somebody to invest in you, uh, and, and those investments are growing. There's an interesting, I think, possible backlash against some of those new food companies around nutrition. I think it's very unclear at the moment how much of this um, newfangled newfangled products the body absorbs nutrition from. That was always the question with things like vitamin pills. You know, do you just pee them straight out? Or do you actually absorb them? And, you know, the anti-dairy lobby 
has been very effective in sort of trying to demonize milk, for example. But I have seen studies that show correlation between child IQ after World War II and rising milk consumption. Now, can the non-dairy industry make those claims? Um, the jury's out and will be out for some time. But I think that, that those are questions that will be uh, faced by those companies because they're effectively industrially producing food. They claim is better for people and the planet. Well, it might be better for the planet, but are they better for people? I think time will tell. And there's, a, there's going to be a lot of studies done to, to assess that. So um, the consumer trend side of things uh, mustn't be too overhyped. Uh, you know, the, the demand for classic food products is still there. And in many cases, comfort food sales have grown during the pandemic, which isn't necessarily good for human health either. So it's a complex picture, but those are the three main drivers for the food industry as I see them at the moment. Yes, and, and often when people point to the power of consumer advocacy and so forth, it can be associated with a sense, well, we don't need to do the regulatory side of it as well, you know, uh, or it's a substitute in some sense. But as you say, it's it's a very particular kind of interest with its own particular, you know, I guess, limitations as well and, and uh, you know, focus. Um, but yeah, got to be seen in the round. Um, now, smallholder uh, farmers, uh, this this is a substantial piece of research. Uh, I think it was uh, sixty or organizations that you know uh, interviews were done with, and 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 tremendous uh, desk research and so forth. And what emerges is a, a you know a, a, a complex picture of uh, you know in in, in many ways uh, you know a, a complex, varied, you know, idiosyncratic, opaque uh, world of, of 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 these supply chains, which is understandable. The scope uh, you know you're looking at in in, in different countries and different uh, commodities and so forth. Um, where what, why are small smallholder farmers important? Well, um, enormous amount of the world's food supply comes from smallholders. Um, in palm oil, it's 40 percent. Um, and uh, that's where a lot of the impacts are in terms of deforestation and land use change, um, uh, burning as well um, of, of land for, for replanting and so on, um, or clearing of land. Um, so smallholders are very, very important. In, you know, there are varying percentages of them in different crops around the, the world, but they are incredibly important, but they're amongst the poorest people on earth. We've all seen the stats, I'm, I'm sure, about cocoa farmers and how poor they are. And in many cases, these farms are getting smaller, not larger. That's possibly to do with inheritance laws and um, and so on. But really, if you look at the agricultural development of the West, or as we used to call it, or the richer countries um, today, as we might more accurately term them, you know, a lot of their agricultural gains came from some form of land consolidation. Now, you can easily argue, rightfully, that can go too far. Um, and the last thing uh, people want, I think, in many cases, is smallholder farms being gobbled up and turned into huge plantation agriculture crops um, or plantations. You can't always do that with, with many crops anyway, uh, due to the way they're, they're grown. Um, and so smallholders are very vulnerable, in some cases, get becoming more vulnerable. They get their, the average age can be is going up, um, but yet life expectancy is not matching that. And resilience is a huge factor. You know, by the time they get a cut of the of the product, it can be absolutely tiny. Um, the FT did a really interesting piece a couple of years ago on uh, the, a price, the price of a cup of coffee in London and what the farmer gets from that. And of course, the farmer was getting pennies, if that. And uh, the biggest slice came from property rent 
for the coffee shops. <laughs> so, you know, the landlords were taking the largest chunk of the price of a cup of coffee by far, while the, while the farmers got very little. And that was a good example of how farmers can get left behind. Uh, and we see these disruptor companies like Tony's Chocolonely and Coco, who have you know set out with a mission to disrupt and reform the cocoa industry in, in favor of the farmers. Um, and so what we set out to do um, about a year ago was to say, okay, well, lots of these people working in corporate supply chains who deal with smallholder crops don't get the chance to talk to each other, even in the same trading companies. And I won't name any particularly, but even in the same traders who trade multiple crops, you know, the coffee people never spoke to the cocoa people and probably still don't today. But there are smallholder farming resilience programs happening in these supply chains all over the world. So we set out to say, okay, how do we join up some of the learnings here? What can cotton learn from coffee? And what can coffee learn from cocoa? What can cocoa learn from palm oil? So we um, put together a research coalition uh, with a number of partners, including the, the German government's development agency, GIZ, Nestle, Golden Agri Resources, Colio ACP, which is a European-funded fruit and vegetable coalition, um, the Clinton Foundation, um, and Cotton Connect, which is a, a, a brilliant social enterprise, which creates cotton supply chains for, for Primark and CNA. And we said, OK, how do we learn? Um, and so we started working with uh, a brilliant man named Dr. Peter Stanbury, who I've known for 20 odd years. And rather than being a sustainability supply chain guy, he is a development and political economist who has spent his life on the ground in countries and in parts of countries you wouldn't often want to go to because of the conditions there. Um, and so he takes a very different perspective, almost an economist, a political economist perspective, really, combined with that development experience. And we interviewed more than 85 experts. And, and a COVID benefit, if one can call anything that, was that people were more available. Uh, so we were able to get people on Zoom, you know, in the fields or in their in their offices, Um because uh, because of various lockdowns, we were able to speak to people and, and and ask them what their reflections were on their particular crop and then assess how we could learn across different commodities. And we came up with some startling findings, which really surprised us. Um, one was that if you review all the smallholder literature, and we reviewed all of it that we could, the focus is exclusively on smallholders. It's not on the enabling environment. And um, that might be surprising to some but not to others the point is that it is not just the smallholder farm itself that governs the success of that farm it is the institutional environment around it how does stuff move from the farm to the port for example what are the conditions of those workers does anybody care about truck drivers uh, what about tax regimes how about the fact that the european union puts prohibitive prohibitive tariffs on finished or more finished goods coming into the eu which causes huge problems with um, countries trying to trade up in the value chain. The role of technology. Now, you might think technology is revolutionizing smallholder supply chains. It's revolutionizing monitoring and some communication. Yet technology wasn't mentioned once in 85 interviews that we did, which really surprised us. Now, that doesn't mean it's not being used and won't be a, a part of the game-changing toolkit. It will be, and it is. But it shows that the focus is, is not always on the things that we think it is. Um, and the solutions are much broader than just focusing on tripling or doubling the yield of a farmer. In many cases in smallholder agriculture, you can double or triple the yield, but they're still going to be really poor working in some cases ever smaller plots of land.
So there needs to be a conversation about those wider factors and there needs to be a, a, a conversation about what are the alternative mechanisms um, to things like co-ops and cooperatives can be, in many cases, a wonderful thing, but they can often be a quite rigid, opaque structure, which often doesn't uh, allow everybody in. So the question is, how do you encourage communities of farmers to work together in a way which means they can marshal resources, drive efficiencies, not necessarily be in the strictures of a co-op or the structures of a co-op, but can have efficiencies and economies of scale? Another key finding we we, we looked at was market access for crops which um, are not always sold abroad you know most a lot of smallholder farms will create more than one crop or communities will, will create more than one crop but they might be reliant on one crop's income in the international markets let's say palm oil is a good example well what could you do for those communities if you could uh, ha- enable market access for them beyond just local markets which are often cyclical and, and, and very regionally focused um, how could you give them more international market access? How do you use corporate supply chains to do that? That's a really important question. And another finding, and, and I'll finish off here, is um, the question of moving from not doing stuff that's bad to doing stuff that's good. And this is a reflection we're seeing in the largest retailers and, and consumer goods companies in the world, where we're moving from zero deforestation or no deforestation or zero net deforestation to forest positive. Now, forest positive sounds like corporate bullshit on the surface of it, but um, the intention behind it is very, very important, and I, and I think a potential game changer. It, it's kind of looking forward rather than looking back. It's kind of front, front foot forward in terms of getting people to value natural resources in the supply chain and thinking about then what are the positive incentives which allow them uh, to, to become resilient while maintaining and enhancing natural resources, rather than simply saying, don't cut down that tree, which isn't going to work. So we found a lot in that report. And since then, we've created an action research project uh, coalition under our, the name we're using uh, of Innovation Accelerator, which is designed to convene companies and governments together uh, to, un- to, to explore these issues further. How do we link up the desire to cut carbon in the supply chain the desire to measure and claim carbon in the supply chain, who owns it, for example, with the sustainable development goals, um, with nature protection, uh, and how do we bring in the the unicorn of of ecosystem services for farmers and communities so they can have rural, resilient communities? Because only by doing that will you protect nature and be able to restore forests and ecosystems. Um, So there's a huge amount of work to be done, and we're delighted to be playing some small role somewhere in the middle of it to try and convene companies and policymakers and others to try and take the body of knowledge forward. You've covered a lot of ground there. Fascinating. Um, uh, very interesting. You, you mentioned that there, and this is something that I think is distinctive, that you do this convening and bringing people together and so forth. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because I guess um, the food industry, uh, the, you know, the, the, the activists uh, and, and some of the NGOs have been very critical of some of the, the big food companies, the agribusiness uh, and so forth, the commodity companies of, you know, uh, knee deep in controversies uh, of various different kinds. Um, what's your attitude to to convening? How, how do you frame that? You know, the, a company who's got a you know a bad track record, but is talking about making change or or or, or some, some of whom you actually see making change. I mean, presumably you kind of have to take a kind of ecosystem uh, perspective or there's a certain number of key players that you've got to include. 
Yes, I mean it's very simple in a way, Fergal. We're we're a business, and our, we we began in the conference industry. That's my background, doing sustainability conferences and publishing for the last twenty years. And, and over time, we evolved that business model uh, into more in-depth discussions and and these sort of action coalitions and working groups that we're working on now. But still, the core of our main business is is these conferences. We do them differently by having no PowerPoint, and we have kind of intellectually aggressive questioning, as you've witnessed recently at our recent Future of Food conference. And you know, if you turn up with nothing to say, you've got nowhere to hide. And um, you know, you only have to have a company uh, humiliate themselves once or twice for them to realise they'd better stay away from the party or turn up with a decent bottle of wine. <laughs> and uh, and <laughs> yes. so we, you know, by that process, we don't tend to get laggards turn up now. They might come in the audience, obviously, to, to sit and listen and to see which way yeah. the wind is blowing. But amongst the biggest food companies and agribusiness in the world, you know, there aren't definitive laggards. Um, you know, it's not like the energy industry where you've got oil and gas majors saying one thing in public. And according to the latest Greenpeace newsletter, you know, they've been busted on video saying the absolute opposite. Um, in, yes. in private. Yet that doesn't really happen so much anymore in food. I'm not saying it didn't. It absolutely did. But I think the food industry hugely realises um, what needs to be done now. The question is, where are you as a company in terms of the spectrum um, and, and how, how ambitious are you? So we've got past that point, which is great. Um, and really, we, we just try and bring the biggest players together with the value chain to, to have discussions. And that, but that value chain has to include farmers at its very heart. So, you know, all of our conferences and public meetings now, um, I say public, you know, there's a small fee to attend because we have to fund ourselves. You know, we begin and end with farmers and we always make sure we're farmer centric because they have to be listened to. Um, and so it's really a combination of getting the right players in the room and asking the difficult questions. Uh, and then backing that up with the the other research and more focused work that we do that uh, perhaps puts a bit of meat on the bones. Yeah, but very interesting. I mean, are there tremendous imbalances of power? You're talking about, you know, some of these uh, companies, massive private companies, you know, huge presence in the commodity markets. And then, as you say, you've got the smallholder farmer, you've got then, you know, various, I guess, growing kind of coalitions or, or uh, cooperatives and various kind of different levels of organisation. Is there uh, is that uh, what on the face of it looks like a, you know a, a, certainly a, a big imbalance in power? Are there ways that's mediated? Is that being mediated uh, in a better way, allowing the the, the, the smaller players, the the the, the more uh, uh, at risk and so forth, of, of of having a say and and having a better quality of of, of you know farming experience? Well, it's, I mean, it's a good question. It's the age old criticism of capitalism, isn't it? You know. Um, I remember the first sustainable agriculture conference I ever did in 2002, a man running an African NGO stood up and he pointed at uh, the head of agriculture for Nestle, uh, Hans Jur, who's still there, by the way. I think he was last time I checked, <laughs> the lifer. And he said to him, you're an oligopoly. What are you going to do about it? And I remember the guy from Nestle just looked at him and shrugged and said, what, what am I supposed to do with that? You know, so you play the hand you're dealt. And don't forget, and none of the executives that we work with are responsible for this system. You know, they're in it. So the question is, what do you do with it? It's not up to us to try and reform capitalism. Um, we only do that, I suppose, 
by uh, by encouraging focus on long-term sustainability. And that is what's reforming capitalism, taking that longer-term approach that Paul, Paul Polman um, made a big deal out of when he was Unilever CEO, you know, and forcing the markets and everybody else to think longer term. That's what sustainability has done to change capitalism. Um, and so we, we you know, that, yeah, that's yeah. how we see our role. Farmers, yes, there is a massive power imbalance. The question is, what do we do about it? Well, farmers are getting much more of a voice now because it's very clear that they are at the heart of this. The most popular article we've ever published on Innovation Forum in eight years was a piece by Chris Willey, former uh, head of agriculture for the Rainforest Alliance, who wrote an, ups, an absolutely brilliant piece called Only Farmers Can Change Farming um, about three years ago. And I republished that article on LinkedIn about once every six months, and it gets thousands and thousands of views. Um, and I know boards of companies rang up Chris and said, come and speak to our board about this article. And he was being very humble, just saying, well, just read it. <laughs> just take note. You don't need me. Uh, he's a very, very humble man. Um, and, uh, and I think that's incredibly important, is that that focus on farmers has really changed. I, I can remember 10 years ago, that was not the case. You know, I was going to meetings with Nestle, with Cargill, with Unilever, and everyone was talking about farmers without really having them in the room. Um, and we were doing that as well. You know, we were just as guilty. Uh, through my previous business and in, in innovation forum, in, in in speaking about key players in the abstract, and that doesn't that doesn't happen so much anymore. Uh, so that that's one way uh, of solving that that problem you correctly enunciate. It, it also solves it. It it's a partial solution is giving them you know, giving people more of a voice. Yeah, yeah, very interesting. You you mentioned. Um the uh question um of of well by definition the clues in the in in the, in the name the small holders these are you know very small and as you say getting smaller um now who pays for the changes that are going to be necessary as as you know the more sustainable more resilient more uh regenerative and I, I know we maybe we can talk a little bit about carbon farming but uh prior to that um you know th th there's got to be an investment um, who, who pays for that? I mean, the, the cost of food has fallen dramatically uh, in, in, in the West, in most Western countries, in the UK. I, I saw some figures, um, you know, over 30 years, uh, you know, dr dramatically. Uh, we don't pay a lot of money for our food here. Uh, different countries, France is a bit, <laughs> quite a bit more. But um, who, when you look at this, you know, obviously you've got consumers, you've got the, uh, the farmers, you've got the various different intermediaries. Where is the scope, and who 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 do you think will be willing to pay in different parts, you know, for, for the investment and to make this, you know, commitment and and change? Yeah, I think there's a few things that's got to happen. First of all, clearly the income of farming communities has to be raised, and that has to be done through diversification, through capacity building, through uh, different forms of working together, um, and there's enormous amount of efficiencies to be driven. Um, you're probably aware as much as I am for how much food is wasted moving from the farm to free on board on a ship, for example. That waste. Yes, well, it's strange that I mean the same. I, as I understand it, roughly the same proportions in the West as in 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 uh, you know the emerging markets or these countries, but for very different reasons. Exactly. You know, refrigeration technology, road infrastructure, uh, efficiency of transport. 
you know, roads are often the enemy of of, of some campaigners. But you know, in, a road in the right place is very different from a road in the wrong place, um, and a road that connects a, a farming community to a market is very different from a road into a natural forest. Um, and uh, and so I think we have to think very carefully about the role of infrastructure here. So there's enormous amount of waste around. It's a myth that companies are efficient, just as it's a, a myth that anything else is efficient. So companies can stop wasting their own resources. Um, we've just seen that coverage recently of Amazon throwing away all those perfectly good things into landfill, apparently, although they deny that it's gone to landfill. Certainly, you know, brands have been accused of destroying their own products that can't be sold. And in food, you know, there's accidental waste that happens all the time. So that's one way of driving efficiencies. And, and that um, those gains need to be shared with farmers and they need to kind of own those and take pride in them because the cultural change element is enormously important. And then, yeah, I think the price of food does have to go up in many countries. You mentioned France being more uh, expensive than the UK. Having lived in France a few years ago, it absolutely is. Um, but I used to take amazing pleasure in going to Carrefour, where I lived in France, <laughs> seeing, seeing what the most incredible supermarket. And I, I, I was never happy to have my you know, basket, my shopping trolley cost 300 euros or whatever. But the quality of food was extraordinary compared to the UK. Um, and so you get what you pay for. And, you know, I mentioned the FT's analysis of a cup of coffee. They did another piece on uh, on the price of food in Europe, and it varies enormously. And the French pay a lot more, and we pay the least in the UK. Um, so everyone has to share that burden, but the burden needs to be brought in uh, over time, uh, but it can be done quickly in some cases if we have the kind of efficiencies around not wasting food, uh, and getting food to market when it's grown more effectively. And I would hope if there's any kind of silver lining for Brexit when it comes to agriculture in the UK, and that is a, that's a hell of a reach, is that that efficiency is going to be so necessary now in the UK because of Brexit um, as a way of perhaps offsetting the rising costs the UK consumer faces. So a very complex picture. I'm no expert on that. I recently published a brilliant I, I was going to say a brilliant podcast, a podcast with a with a brilliant man, uh, um, a, a, a professor at the University of St. Andrews, um, uh, Sir Ian Boyd, who's for DEFRA's former chief scientific advisor, where we talked about this. It's on the Innovation Forum website, where we look, he, 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 I asked him about, you know, how these changes are going to need to take hold and how the burden is shared. And clearly, innovation is going to be essential. The question is, what does that mean? in practical senses. And I think stopping waste is, is the first portion of that. And indeed, there are yeah. organizations now like the Consumer Goods Forum who have um, you know, very good people there working on, on food waste uh, coalitions with large companies. And yeah, that's all quite under the radar. It never gets the credit that it deserves, but a lot of changes are happening. Yes, very good. Now, I have a couple more questions. I'd like to talk to you uh, in a little bit about the Sustainable Wines Initiative. And um, there are a couple of other things that I think are distinctive and interesting uh, that I've come across in, in, in your work that you've been putting forward, which I haven't been familiar with. Approach the landscapes approach. Um, what is that? Why does it matter? So uh, the landscape approach really is about uh, how we um, tackle sustainable commodities in in a jurisdiction or a landscape. And a landscape can be um, often defined geographically and a jurisdiction is politically. But it's effectively a, a, a body of land, if you like, which might be uh, distinct through through geology, or sorry, geography 
or through or political boundaries. And the landscape approach effectively says, let's find regions where companies can work together to commit to sustainable sourcing for multiple commodities and drive up standards. So rather than take on a you know, a whole country at a time in terms of improving its enabling environment, its operating environment, let's choose a region where multiple commodities are, are being sourced uh, and let's let's get that region uh, performing better in terms of um, its governance, in terms of how the farmers uh, are working together and working with companies to become more resilient and more sustainable. So there are various landscape approaches around the world. There's, there's a successful ones in Peru, in Sumatra, in Indonesia, um, in other places. And uh, they can work, but it's very early days because you are dealing with a lot of complexity. You're dealing with local politics. You're dealing with local political incentives, local tax issues. Um, but it's seen as definitely not the magic bullet, but the next best thing uh, to every company working on their own. So it's early days. I mean, we run a sustainable landscapes and quantities forum every year for the past five years or so. And we see incredible interest in this area, but it's 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 very much bit by bit. It, it can often be two steps forward, one and a half steps back. Um, and of course, COVID has caused huge problems for progress because you don't have that on the ground visibility that you had 18 months ago in some of these places. So a, a very important innovation in, in business thinking in supply chains, um, but a very complex uh, one in terms of, of reality. But uh, there is progress happening there. Very interesting. Um, uh, just before we leave, there are two other topics uh, where it's doing a kind of helicopter over these. But um, we talked about resilience, resilient supply chains. A lot of talk now about regenerative farming, and you've been covering that and some uh, uh, very interesting uh, discussions uh, on your recent uh, uh, Future of Food uh, forum. Um, can you just talk a little bit about regenerative and also, uh, not to make it any easier, carbon farming? <laughs> Carbon farming. Oh, there's, there's a. That's a whole other, a whole other. There's, there's a whole. Just before hole. we go on, uh, just at least the people understand what the language is. Sure. Okay. Let's start with regenerative agriculture. Um, if you go to the Innovation Forum website, you can find a, a podcast interview I did with Jeff Catch from the Rodale Institute, and they're, they're credited with uh, being one of the, I guess, one of the early ad adopters of the theory of regenerative farming, which really began. Um, with a focus on soil and a focus on soil health and um, a regenerative ecosystem approach, um, which you know was not necessarily a new idea. It's something that Rudolf Steiner um, encapsulated in his lectures that formed the basis of the biodynamic movement, uh, which again is a spectrum of practice rather than a codified one. Um, and so regenerative started out as being a kind of slightly niche, slightly hippie, uh, let's have healthy soils and no chemicals approach. Um, but it's evolving very fast. I mean, I ran a conference recently on sustainability in wine. And I asked three leading figures in the wine industry, can you be regenerative without being organic? And they said yes. But if you talk to the Regenerative Organic um, Certification Alliance in California, they'll say absolutely not, that organic is the cornerstone of regenerative. Um, if you talk to General Mills, the, the big U.S. cereals uh, and, and uh, food producer, they'll, uh, food brand company, they'll tell you that they've got a million hectares that they've put, uh, sorry, a million acres that they've put under regenerative agriculture programs. Now, I bet the implementation of that looks rather different from from earlier iterations. So it's 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 become both 
a subject of inspiration in the sense that regenerative sounds so much better than sustainable and it captures people imag people's imagination. It gets people excited. And I think that's a brilliant thing. The critics of it say, on the one hand, it's kind of, you know, it can be hippie, dogmatic, organic, non-scalable, uh, yield limiting uh, idealism. And on the other half, people can say, well, it's corporate greenwash at the finest at its highest level, depending on how you look at it. So there are a lot of different views. There's no doubt it's become a latest buzzword. You know, there are companies announcing their ambition to become regenerative companies, um, but they haven't done full life cycle analysis on their totality of their impact. So they don't even know how to do it. So some people are getting a bit ahead of themselves. And there are those I know who argue that we've spent 30 years codifying, working out the standards for sustainable agriculture. And then along comes regenerative, which doesn't have the same rigor behind it. And it can be anything you want it to be. So I, I can see all sides of it. I see how it inspires people, but I also see how its vagueness and, and its openness to interpretation can be a danger. Uh, I think it's going to be really interesting to see how it plays out. Very interesting. Very interesting. On, on carbon farming, um, well, that is, I mean, Al Gore is big on that. That's his latest thing um, down on his farm in Missouri, I think it is. Carbon farming is, is a sort of niche element in some ways, or began as a niche element of, or part of regenerative, uh, where it said, you know, studies show soil locks up up to 20 times the, the carbon dioxide or, or GHGs that uh, mainly CO2 that, that trees do. Um, yet we've had all this focus on trees, but actually soil is where carbon should be stored because if it's not stored in the soil, it'll end up, could end up in the oceans. And then you have ocean acidification, which we don't want, or in the atmosphere, of course, where you have uh, climate change. So, Carbon farming is very interesting. It's also controversial. You know, the question is, how do you count it and who owns that carbon? Well, the farmer owns it. So what are they able to do with it? How do you avoid double counting uh, if companies are going to try and claim that they've caused more CO2 to be captured in the soils of their supply chains? That is open for discussion. That's one of the things our research coalition is looking at, and many others are too. So it it, it is seen in some cases as a bit of a magic bullet. And, and of course, as we know, magic bullets never turn out to be magic. Um, and, uh, you know, some people argue it can be the secret to unlocking ecosystem services payments for farmers. Okay, but how are you going to count carbon that was already there anyway? How are you going to measure it when soil composition changes very rapidly uh, in, in geographies? You know, there are many, many complex questions which are thrown up by the idea. And so one has to look very carefully uh, beyond the headline. And companies have to be very careful about how they posit this in their strategies, because, you know, it, it could be the next offsetting. <laughs> you know, you remember the controversy around offsetting in the past. It's got a lot better now. There are some very credible offsets under the Red Plus program now uh, and, and other offsets. But, but carbon farming could end up having the same reputation that, that, that carbon offsetting had 15 years ago, if it's not careful, or if companies aren't careful in how they look at it, because... There are many more questions than answers at the moment, and a lot more work needs to be done to work out uh, how we avoid counting stuff that was already there anyway, and then trying to claim yeah, it. Right, very interesting. Um, you know, Blue Bloomberg has done some really, really good journalism in the last six months on issues like yeah. this. Um, you know, looking at US NGOs that were counting carbon in trees, in forests, on land that was never going to be changed anyway, <laughs> and then selling those credits to companies who then use them as offsets. Well, as you say, yeah, I mean, but certainly that's one we might need to come back and invite you back to get your further research. But as you say, um, that the offset, uh, carbon offsets, um, 
it's still got a, a way to go, I think. And there's, <laughs> these issues are, 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 are prone there, really, this question um, and how they're being used and, and, and so forth. Um, and, uh, yeah, I think, I think the key, Fergal, is to say, um, what are we trying to do? Well, if you look at the nature needs half movement, where scientists say nature needs half the planet, well, um, then what we really need to do is to link up any kind of carbon claims with the wider picture of sustainable development. And this is why I think some of the Red Plus projects are very interesting because they're very people-centric. And as we know, indigenous communities, local people are absolutely key for managing um, ecosystems in landscapes for forest protection, ecosystem protection and restoration. The best way you will restore an ecosystem or a forest is to leave it alone. Yes, yes. Um, because doing it manually, A, doesn't deliver, and, and B, is too expensive. It's cheaper to find land, leave it alone, create incentives for people to protect it than it is to try and artificially recreate it. And this is where the whole tree planting thing has got completely out of hand. You know, in most tree planting schemes, there's an 80% failure rate. And uh, we, we did a podcast about this on the Innovation Forum called 50, 50 Shades of Green, <laughs> where, we, uh, where we dug down into some of the tree planting stuff. And on mongabay.com, uh, the brilliant Rep Butler and team have done a, a fascinating piece of research on tree planting recently, showing that really it's too narrow an approach and actually potentially very dangerous because it doesn't take into account the wider issues. And it doesn't take necessarily into account sustainable economic development of communities. And that's where we need to focus on all of these issues if we want to have a chance at restoring and protecting nature. Fascinating. You, I, I just have to ask, Red Plus, it has been bedeviled with controversies. Are they in the past? Do you think that uh, or, or, or the controversies? I, I, I'm not a, an expert or I've just come across again and again that the word Red Plus and controversy come together quite often. Um, is it changing? I, I think it is. I think there's more verifiable progress. So we talked about the role of technology in smallholder agriculture and how it didn't come up in our report. Technology is playing a really key role in ecosystem and forest monitoring. And so technology is really helping us see uh, what's happening. Um, don't forget, with Red Plus, lots of NGOs decided from the very beginning they hated it because they see carbon offsets as a moral hazard. You know, if you can, if you can, it's, you know, it's, Catholic, it's Catholicism, uh, yeah, the worst elements of Catholicism in, you know, in satire, you know, sort of having your sins and then going off and uh, having your sins washed away in confession. That's sort of how they see, uh, how they see offsets. And um, what, what that has neglected to, to, I think, to appreciate over time is that these projects have got better. They've learned as they've gone and they are protecting important incredibly important ecosystems. So actually, the benefit is more around uh, protecting what's there than it is around giving a company a carbon offset. The carbon offset thing is just a mechanism to finance it. But really what you're doing is protecting and enhancing nature. And that's what a good Red Plus project does. Yes, there are problems. You know, there, there always are. If, if you're trying to take a large piece of land and conserve it and allow it to restore while you're surrounded by impoverished people and poor judicial and enforcement systems, there are always going to be problems, no matter what system you set up. But Red Plus definitely deserves, uh, you know, a, a, deserves a chance to, to, to be seen as, uh, as a solution here because it's, it's, it, we haven't got too many other options, you know, where, there's, where you can create an incentive. Where, where the campaigners hate it is that, you know, it's a, it's a tax on pollution for heavy, heavy emitters. You know, carry on doing what you're doing, you know, say some stuff about electrification of, you know, shipping or or flying, but actually you just pay a tax. Well, um, 
those are many things bundled together and you shouldn't necessarily disadvantage the protection of those natural areas because you don't like the fact that airlines pollute. And I, and I think it's important that we, we separate out those areas and we remember that there are different benefits to different approaches. Yes. You said that was a, on, on your podcasts. You, you did a specific one on it. Yeah. We, I mean, we're covering a lot of Red Plus stuff at the moment. We're doing quite a bit of work with Everland Marketing, who represent Red Plus projects. So, you know, some people might say I have a conflict of interest because they're a customer of ours. On the other hand, I'm now exposed a lot more to the work that's being done. And I see that uh, that, that I think in, in many cases it's very, very credible and contributing towards issues that we, we didn't really know it, were important when we started doing down carbon offsets 15 years ago, because the first round of carbon offsets, a lot of them were pretty dodgy, but you can't get away with that anymore. You simply can't. So, um, you know, it, it's it's not a perfect solution in any way, but it's if we're going to protect what remains of nature, we need something. And some of these projects are excellent. Fascinating. Very good. Um, I, we, you're, we've gone on a grand tour in, in a lot of detail and then jumping in, into some of these topics, which are you know complex and uh, take a lot of time to, to understand and to research. We'll be back in a minute. Stay with us. Global Witness, a pioneering campaigning NGO that exposes the environmental and human rights abuses by some of the world's biggest companies and most powerful political figures. For 25 years, they've campaigned against the exploitation of the Earth's natural resources, the destruction of indigenous peoples, and corruption that has siphoned billions of dollars from the poorest countries. Global Witness doesn't just expose the abuse of power, it works to transform the systems that allow this abuse to flourish unchecked. Find out more at globalwitness.org. And now we're back to today's episode. Um, now on to a project closer to your heart, uh, the Sustainable Wine Roundtable, round uh, which you set up. Um, I was looking at it and it says it's a, a, a global independent roundtable that includes all stakeholders. Why does that matter? It's independent and, and all stakeholders, I think, are, are a key part of what you're about there. Yes. Yeah, so um, as a side project to my work with Innovation Forum, where we don't cover wine, uh, I decided to set up a, a company called Sustainable Wine a couple of years ago and um, do conferences on sustainability and wine and publishing. And many of my colleagues said to me, why are you doing what you do for a living for a hobby? Are you mad? <laughs> and, I, I thought, and I said, well, good point, but I do love wine. I love the wine industry. Uh, and of course, you know, there's no other agricultural product that has such connection to the land uh, as, as wine. And you know, the vine is often seen as the canary in the coal mine, the roots reach very deeply and, and and vineyard managers are more aware of soil health than just about anybody else in agriculture because because that's what they live and die by um in terms of crop quality um so we ran a number of conferences under the sustainable wine name over the past few years and what became very obvious was a need for a sustainable wine roundtable uh modeled in part on some of the other sustainability roundtables in agriculture that brings together um, multiple stakeholders focuses on three core objectives one a kind of reference standard for sustainability in wine because of the proliferation of schemes and uh, and the kind of duplication of work that's being done. Two, um, a set of toolkits and practical working groups and ways in which the industry can collaborate to drive sustainability through, through the industry. Uh, and three, a kind of advocacy group which celebrates the good things the wine industry is doing and helps point out the value of things like cork forests, for example. Uh, right, cork right. forests are an enormous carbon sink they're an enormous provider of sustainable material in some of the poorest countries uh, around the Mediterranean. 
yet who knows about it or no right. yes i should have asked you what how how unsustainable traditionally has the wine industry been or what maybe putting it the other way what 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 potential is there for a more sustainable and significantly more sustainable wine sector i mean what's at stake here yeah i mean what what's at stake well um if you take into account climate change you know the future of future of decent wine um you know drinkable wine will always be easy easier to make with technology and so on um and i'm not talking about two buck chuck which they sell in america which is not really <laughs> wine. it's a concoction of 50 things that taste like alcoholic medicine um sorry two buck chuck uh but i missed that um, sorry yeah it's 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 not worth picking up trust me um i'm not talking about wines that cheap but you know the average bottle of wine in the uk is about six quid and uh, maybe a bit less that that wine can always be made i think um but but really good wine you know is going to suffer and is suffering from climate change uh, now um and that's to do with volatility of weather um you know this year is a very good example some vineyards lost up to 80 percent of their crop when frost hit uh in in april uh i think it was in april at a very crucial time um for for vine development um so uh, the, the industry has been unsustainable in the sense uh of packaging really i mean if you think about it most vineyards are carbon sinks um, and there is CO2 produced in fermentation, but it's it's you know it's not a huge amount. The global climate change footprint of the wine industry is pretty small. It's tiny, you know, it's way less than rice, for example. Um, but what other consumer product is still in mostly in a format that's 300 years old? <laughs> I mean, the wine bottle is hundreds of years old. The 750 ml wine bottle apparently existed because that was the lung capacity of a French glass blower in the 17th century. <laughs> what, what other product has not innovated in its main packaging for that long? Yet, on the other hand, you know, glass recycling is is pretty high in many European countries. But the big problem is the energy used to create glass and the CO2 and and, and pollution created in moving glass around with liquid in it. You know, there are some wine bottles which are heavier than the wine itself. I have a wine bottle at home that's 1.6 kilograms empty. <laughs> now, and it probably was a very fine wine. It was a very nice wine. There's, you know, no, no wine needs to be in a bottle like that. You can have a, no. you know, you can have a bottle of wine at three, three fifty. You know, you, some people say you can get it down to three hundred twenty grams for a glass bottle, and that's a huge change. So. The industry needs to focus on innovation in packaging. And I, I just had a conversation with someone about this earlier today. And at some point, the industry is going to need to say, you know, wine under a certain price point, should it really be in glass? You know, perhaps it can be in really cool, trendy packaging that's much more recyclable uh, in terms of its overall footprint and appeals to consumers and helps wine stay relevant in the face of, you know, innovation in other forms of alcoholic drinks. So there's a huge... Uh, there is a liability there, with particularly with, with packaging, um, but there's also a huge opportunity for the industry to sort of modernise and find new ways of selling possibly smaller portions of wine. You know, a right. 750 ml bottle of wine is not good for you if you drink it all yourself. But yeah. what? But if you could have it in a 200 ml or 150 ml container, well, that would be a lot better for you as long as you didn't drink loads of them. So... There is a, a huge amount of opportunity for innovation, and that's what the Sustainable Wine Roundtable exists to do. Uh, swroundtable.org for anybody who's interested, or you just Google Sustainable Wine on your podcast app or, 
or look for it on the internet, sustainablewine.co.uk. Um, and, and really, all, all of that, the whole enterprise is non-profit and it's bringing together the industry to solve these challenges together. And the interest has been incredible. I mean, I've never seen anything like it in my years working in sustainability. We've got 30 founder members for the roundtable, and the deadline is this week for founder members. Um, and some of the biggest players in the world in wine are involved, including the world's leading wine critic, Jancis Robinson, who sees sustainability as vital for the industry. So we're very excited about the potential of the roundtable, but quite daunted by our ever-growing to-do list uh, in terms yeah, of making change happen in the industry. I, I can imagine. Now, what about, um, you mentioned before, the organic wines. You've got organic wines, you've got biodynamic. Um, uh, is sustainable a brand or would become, a, uh, no, not a brand, but part of a brand? Um, uh, do organic and biodynamic include elements? Are there, is that something that's going to be a growing part of it um, as well, that people are, are buying wines? I mean, uh, uh, thinking about what you said, I mean, the price point, maybe it's not, because if you've got, you know, great wines and so forth, they're not necessarily biodynamic or organic, but uh, presumably still that has a, 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 a source of profits and, and growth in the industry. Yeah. So actually, interestingly, uh, you will find that most of the world's leading wine brands, the most expensive super premium wines, are all headed in that direction. They're all experimenting. They don't like to talk about it. They're concerned that the high end customer might think it could lead to a decline in quality. You know, the natural wine movement has has uh, been extremely popular with consumers. You know, they're cheaper wines, they're funkier. There's you know a lot less happening in the winery. Um, some people argue that that makes a worse wine some people love it um but all the the world's there's, there's not a single i can't think of a single premium wine i know of or producer of them that isn't doing lots of really interesting experimentation around sustainability because why not right they've got the margins you know so they can do it um organic is the most recognized term by far and if you ask waitrose they'll tell you organic wine's been flying off the shelves during the pandemic because consumers become more considered in their purchases you know they're not in the stressful situation of a restaurant menu i don't know if you've ever seen that youtube video called the second cheapest bottle of wine on the menu um it's very funny it's a very funny video and it's very true you know you you know even if you know a bit about wine like me you sit at a restaurant menu sometimes i think blimey it's quite daunting um so people are at home buying wine and they're becoming much more considered about it so natural wine has its own niche organics the big growth sector Biodynamic is still very, very confusing for consumers um, because biodynamics is not. Biodynamics was a series of lectures by Rudolf Steiner, yeah. Uh, and you take from it what you will. You know, some of it's, some of it's, I think, quite mad, and some of it's based on extremely sound systems of ecosystems working together. You know, so I think it's been described to me by the leading wine writer on it as half science, half mysticism. Uh, and you yes. choose what you want from it. Um, but th- those are all fairly niche. So what we see is an opportunity to make sustainable the B2B term in wine. And I say B2B because I'm not sure we're ready to talk to consumers about that yet. I think what we need to do with the members is get them to try and experiment with consumers to see what consumers will respond to and what their feedback is over um, moving beyond these niche labels. Because consumers are not dumb, you know, particularly if they're sat at home and drinking better wine, they're looking at the bottle thinking, well, why is this so heavy? Um, And and so that you can't just have a narrow focus on viticulture now. You have to have this broader approach. Question is, what does that look like? 
And how do we talk to customers about it? Uh, and we don't know the answers to that yet, but we know we need to answer those questions. And what the uh, roundtable trying to so, do. So uh, what about the, because uh, clearly climate change is, is, is unfolding, um, the, the changing geographical footprint of, of vine growing and, and winemaking. I mean, we've seen this in the south of England. Um, are we going to see uh, Irish wines? Um, is this an issue? Well, um, I think it's an op- it's an opportunity. You talk to people about climate change in the British wine industry, they'll tell you so far climate change has been pretty good for them. But they accept, yes. obviously, that it's terrible for, for, for the, the world in, in the large. But um, the question is around volatility of weather. That's I've interviewed probably 100 winemakers over the last 10 years. And the one thing they all say is the weather has got more volatile. And that volatility, that lack of... Uh, knowledge about what could happen is a real problem for them. It causes huge anxiety. It happened earlier this year, as we mentioned. Uh, you can get tornadoes and hail and all sorts of stuff coming out of nowhere that can ruin your crop. So um, on the one hand, a slight temperature rise has been good for kind of northern European wines um, in terms of being able to ripen them and, and, and grow different varietals. In the long term, of course, climate change is a bad thing for, for many reasons that we, you and I both know about, and I'm sure yeah. the listeners do too. So you will see Irish wine. There may even be some now. There's certainly a fair number of vineyards in Wales. I did hear of a Scottish man trying to make, uh, was it Merlot or something in Scotland a few years ago? Although he did pronounce it himself as undrinkable. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, yes. I, you know I'm, I'm here in Latvia recording this podcast with you. About 100 kilometers south of me is a place called Sabale, which until not long ago was the northernmost vineyard in the world at 57 degrees north. That's since been overtaken by vineyards in Finland, in Norway, and in Sweden, where there's, a, I think, there's 100 hectares of vineyards in Sweden now. So the wine industry has moved north. Um, Right. And so that's created yeah. some opportunities. Although I would say, I don't think, I'm not sure any of those producers are particularly commercially viable yet. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're labors of love. Um, yes. And I don't think they make the best wines. <laughs> but the climate change is certainly enabling grapes to be grown at further northern latitudes. Uh, and it's enabling what the other thing it's doing as well is in, it's interesting. Talking to the winemaker here in Latvia, he uses bush vines, which are non vinous vinifera, or vines which are non vinous vinifera from places like Kazakhstan and Canada because they are uh, cold resistant. Now, the kind of experimentation that's going on here where I am at 57 degrees north, that might assist winemakers in the future as they need to use other variations of the Venus vinifera genus, however you term it, to to make wine resilient to climate change. So, you know, there's an actually benefit to the experimentation that's taking place in in further northern great-growing countries now, I think, in the long term. Yes. What's next for Innovation Forum? You've got some conferences coming up. Yeah, we've got our our Climate Change Scope 3 Supply Chain Carbon Conference at the end of September in the US, US Hours virtual conference. Our Plastics one in the middle of October, which is always a challenge. Uh, And then our Sustainable Landscapes and Commodities Forum, which takes place a couple of weeks after um, COP26 finishes in November. And then next year, the big challenge for us is how do we go back to -to face-to-face again? You know, the last time you and I saw each other, we had a nice glass of wine together at 67 Pall Mall. You know, are we going to be able to do that after a conference? Uh, we don't know yet. We suspect that people are very keen to get back to face-to-face, but the world has changed. 
the question is, how much has it changed? And it will be slightly different for every customer. So that's our that's our biggest challenge is working out how do we take this virtual business we've built in, in the pandemic and go back to what we used to do, which was face-to-face meetings. Uh, and so that's a big challenge. And then otherwise, we're just continuing on with our agenda, really. You know, the focus on agriculture, the focus on plastics, apparel and textiles and so on. And all of, you know, an awful lot of that content is available for for free on innovationforum.co.uk. Brilliant. Uh, Great work and and really important work. And thank you so much for your time today, Toby, and uh, jumping around, going into detail of this really important work and uh, your your great initiatives uh, and and, and a sustainable wine wine roundtable. I wish you the best of success with that. And uh, thank you again. Well, thank you so much for the opportunity, Fergal. And please do keep up, keep up the great work. Your podcast is an essential part of the sustainability movement now. So please do keep it going. If you enjoyed this interview, we think you'll enjoy Cambridge geographer Mike Hume's new book, Climate Change. In Climate Change, Hume makes a powerful case that the power of climate change as an idea can only be grasped from a vantage point that embraces the social sciences, humanities and natural sciences. The book synthesizes Hume's career work on climate change. In 10 carefully crafted chapters, he presents climate change as an idea with a past, a present and a future, and illustrates the different ways political, social and cultural movements in today's world seek to make sense of it and how they act accordingly. Thank you for listening to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. I hope you found it interesting. It would be great if you could leave a review and share the podcast on social media. You can sign up at iTunes to make sure you don't miss any future episodes.